Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap, sponsored by Amazon. Today's Tuesday, March 2nd. New U.S. COVID cases are up, stocks are down, and we're focused on the digitization of the art and collectibles business. This week, Canadian singer and visual artist Grimes put a portfolio of digital artwork up for auction. Several hours later, she'd earned around $6 million. But Grimes didn't put them on eBay. She used something called Nifty Gateway, a platform for a type of cryptocurrency known as non-fungible tokens, or NFTs. All right, I can hear some of your eyes glazing over, so bear with me for a minute. Think of NFTs as a currency and a receipt and an authentication process all wrapped up into one. Grimes makes her art, and then the NFT is used not only to help buy it, but to prove that she made it and to verify how many, or how few, copies of that artwork exist. Three things to know. First, NFTs first made headlines several years back when a couple of programmers created a series of digital cartoon cats known as Crypto Kitties, but the idea was a little bit ahead of the technology. Two. Those same programmers have since signed an exclusive marketing deal with the NBA to create a series of short collectible videos under a brand called NBA Top Shots. They're also traded via NFTs and talk is that their company just raised venture capital at a $2 billion valuation. Three, NFTs can be applied to almost any digital asset from collectibles to fine art to music. The bottom line is this might just be the latest example of moving something from the physical world into the digital world. And before you dismiss it as ludicrous, remember how much people pay for pieces of cardboard with photos of dead baseball players on them, or what people pay for certain pieces of modern art. So in 15 seconds, we'll go deeper with venture capitalist David Pakman, who was one of the original investors in CryptoKitties. But first, this. We're joined now by David Pakman, a partner with the venture capital firm Venrock. So David, let's start here. You invested in Dapper Labs or CryptoKitties several years ago uh, before the idea of NFTs became a thing kind of in popular culture. Help me, what was the background of that investment? And when it was first pitched to you, what did you think? Well, like you, Dan, I was a collector as a kid, you know, baseball cards and stuff like that. And, And I think maybe coins and stamps. And if you think through it, like people collect, it's something humans do. Something like 40% of people collect something at some point in their life, whether it's art or wine or sneakers or shoes or baseball cards. So the concept of there being digital collectibles makes sense to me, but pre-blockchain, you couldn't make a digital collectible because you couldn't enforce its scarcity. People could just copy it. And you could sort of make one if you were a video game, but then it was controlled by a single company. You had to sort of trust them that they weren't going to like print more all of a sudden, like Fortnite does all the time to ruin your scarce assets. So blockchains let us have digital collectibles. I think that's a really interesting idea. And I invested after they launched CryptoKitties, which was a cool experiment that proved it could work. When you say proved it could work, CryptoKitties uh, got a lot of attention when it launched and then seemed to kind of, at least for my perspective, go away. What happened? Why did it go from kind of the peak to the trough so quickly? Yeah, they launched it in December of 2017 as an experiment. Literally, they wrote it like over the course of a weekend and it did not scale. It was not a uh, it was a very challenging user experience. You had to do things like wallets. You couldn't use credit cards to buy them. You had to already be in crypto. And the thesis here was that 
crypto collectibles could be for the normals. It could actually be the first killer app to make crypto go mainstream. But in order to do that, they had to build a whole bunch of other stuff. So they decided to build their own blockchain. They built their own wallet. They stopped using words like blockchain and wallet. And now it looks more like a username and an account and a credit card. And I think um, CryptoKitties, which is still going, by the way, um, it's still got like people still buy and trade CryptoCats, something like $30 million in total CryptoKitty sales to something like 95,000 people. So it's not dead, but it certainly didn't tip over into the mainstream the way NBA Top Shot is tipping. So we'll talk about NBA Top Shot in a second. I'm curious when you talk about how you think it was a little bit too early. I'm trying to think of an analogy. You know, when when you think, for example, of dot-com companies, uh, the pets.coms of the world from 98 and 1999, one of the arguments has always been it wasn't that the idea of the business was bad or even that the product was bad. It was that the infrastructure wasn't there yet, right? You didn't have universal broadband. You sure didn't have smartphones. Is that a decent analogy for where NFTs were a couple of years ago? Yeah, for sure. I think uh, blockchains are super esoteric. The technology was super immature. In order to use credit cards and the internet, you need banks to support you. And banks were not willing in 2017 and 2018 to support the buying of what is effectively a crypto token. Uh, that's changed now. And so we can make the experience more mainstream. And we've done that. Okay. So how do you explain if a family member of yours says to you, so you're selling, you know, kind of images of digital cats on a blockchain. What does that mean in human language? How do you put that into English for somebody who's not a crypto person? Yeah. Do you want to collect great moments from NBA sports, right? Like that's really what a crypto collectible is. In this case, it's a sporting moment. It's unique. There's a, a, an enforced scarcity. There's only, you know, 50 or 100 of each of these. They're serial numbered, just like certain collect collectibles have been in, in history. And there's an open marketplace. There's verifiable ownership. It's yours. And all the rules are written in a contract that can't be changed by the company later. If they go out of business or the MBA has a disagreement with Dapper Labs and they don't work together in the future, you still own your moment. You can use it in other games and um, it doesn't go away. When you say I own the moment. okay, so take an NBA top shot card of LeBron dunking a basketball. Obviously, everybody in the arena saw him dunk the basketball. It was probably broadcast on live TV. There's versions of it on YouTube and maybe on Giphy and all sorts of other places prior to an NBA Top Shots version of it. I understand how I own the NBA Top Shots version, but I don't really own the moment, right? Isn't that moment universal? Everybody's, you can download a digital version of it off of YouTube. Yes, no, you're absolutely right. Your, your former explanation of it is the correct one. You own the NBA Top Shot version of that moment. No one can take the ephemeral view of you sitting in the stands and seeing it away from you. And there were as many of those ephemeral moments made as the people who were in the arena or watched it on TV. But this is different. This is actually a, a digital collectible that has a provenance. It has a set of rules encoded in software behind it. It's written on a public blockchain. It's fully verifiable. It runs across hundreds or thousands of computers around the internet and on a network that anyone can join. It's a little bit different. Um, than just sort of an, an ephemeral moment. And look, to some extent, just like Topps baseball cards, people need to believe that this moment will hold its value or increase in value over time. I saw your tweets about the fact that baseball cards were sort of scarce uh, or basketball cards were sort of scarce and that they, uh, the people who kept them in better condition uh, were rewarded economically later or, or the people who had some foresight and bet on a player who was young or rookie then, those cards went up in value. A lot of the same dynamics applies here. 
Does the same dynamic apply? Because it seems, and tell me I'm wrong about this, that at least when it comes to NBA top shots, and, and we'll get into some of the art and other NFTs after, but when it comes to NFT top shots, the value seems to be explicitly the scarcity that they're creating on day one. Not the scarcity that comes because a bunch of people didn't realize that player X was going to become a Hall of Famer. It's because on day one, NBA top shots said there's only X number of these. Their value because of the scarcity, almost less than what the actual asset is. I don't think we can make that statement today. Literally, this has been out only since October, and it is in beta. <laughs> we will soon see Dapper Labs launch an actual game in which you will use your moments to compete against others. So now the moments have another use where think of a fantasy type assembly of moments that's used to go head to head with someone else. Now the moments have a different level of value. There are also 30 or 40 other third party developers making games that you will use your moments in also, where presumably they'll have some increased value there for, for competition or for gameplay. So I don't think it's only scarcity. It's a little too early to say that's the only reason they're valuable. Can I quickly ask, for the, at least for the game that Dapper is creating, if you win that game, is it just for bragging rights or is there going to be a financial component to that as well? I think it's going to be a little bit of both. There'll be a reward structure as well. Can you tease apart a little bit, you know, when we talk NFTs or when I read about them, uh, you know, NBA top shots and then say digital art by somebody like Beeple or Grimes all kind of get put into the same category. Is that fair? Should they all be viewed the same way, just with the distinction, just like we distinguish right now between collectibles and fine art? I think um, they're being put in the same category because they're built on similar technology, right? A, a non-fungible token, a, a crypto asset that has unique characteristics and enforced scarcity and a contract that runs on a blockchain. However, I think the reasons people buy or trade or invest in them change depending on the type of media. But, you know, for instance, I think some things are just purely collectible. We, we collect them because we want to complete a set or we... We, want, we think they're going to increase in value. And some of them provide like some joy to us, like you can imagine um, limited edition uh, backstage uh, recordings by musical artists, right, that only 100 would be released. Now there's an analog hole and people could, uh, you know, could get around that, but still it would be uh, hard for that asset to be bought or sold unless it was the enforcement on a blockchain. So I think there's a bunch of different use cases for these. So a lot of the art that's being purchased can't be utilized in a game or in some other app. It's, it's really for something different. Let me just bring this full circle. You know, we talked about how CryptoKitties got very popular, then less popular for a while, in part because of the technological changes. What we're seeing now is kind of this massive surge in interest in NFTs, but also value kind of for everything from NBA top shots to fine art, et cetera, or digital art. Do you believe, is there froth right now? Are we about to hit another trough like we did in 2019 for crypto kitties or do you think no we're just at the beginning of a glide path upwards i would point to sneaker head culture a lot of similarities here to supreme and nike doing limited edition drops that have a mania around the purchase there's only a hundred or a thousand made you know we did a drop on the weekend there were 225,000 people in line to buy only 10,000 moments there is unmet demand in these drops. And why are people buying them? Well, one reason for sure is because they think they're going to increase in value. Only 88,000 buyers, unique ones, exist thus far for NBA Top Shot. There are 800 million NBA fans worldwide. So I think a lot of people presently are saying, this stuff's going to increase in value. This is just the beginning. Imagine what's going to happen when there are hundreds of thousands or millions of players here. And I think there will be. I think this will tip into real mainstream mass market use. So I, I can't tell you what's going to happen to asset prices, but um, I think there's some good logic to the fact that as more people play, the scarce moments, the real good ones, are going to be in high demand. David Packman, thank you so much for joining us. Dan, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Welcome back. 
What we're watching today is news that pharma giant Merck is partnering with Johnson & Johnson to help make more of J&J's COVID-19 vaccine, which received emergency use authorization over the weekend. Why it matters is that J&J had only been able to promise 20 million doses by the end of March, with the first 4 million or so to be distributed beginning today. And those doses matter a lot, because remember, they are single shots, which means they go twice as far as the Moderna or Pfizer vaccines. Now, we don't know yet exactly how many extra doses the Merck partnership will produce, but do know that Merck will devote two U.S. manufacturing facilities to the shots, one for making the vaccine itself and the other for vialing and packaging the vaccine. According to the CDC, so far, around 77 million jabs have been administered. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven, have a great national banana cream pie day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.